evening or day, whatever the case may be. This is actor John Malkovich. You might remember me from the movie that had my name in the title. But I was also in last week's film, The Killing Fields, which is a film of such magnitude that it was printed on celluloid and distributed to theaters across the entire United States. But this week is a different film, one that I personally am not in. So, with that in mind, join Brendan and Jason as they take you on a journey that does not include me. This is for Screen and Country. Wow. You know what, Jason? What's that, Jim, Brendan? <laughs> you used to call me Jason. I almost called you Jason. I mean, I look at you and it's like looking in a mirror. We are identical twins. Yeah. But from different mothers. I even shaved my beard and it's still, you still in the mirror. <laughs> you look exactly uh, like me. We have fun. Um, no, I was just going to say, you know, a lot of podcasts are probably super jealous of the guests we get on the show. I know. It's, it's amazing that we've been able to track everybody down, even just to give us, you know, a few seconds of their time. And, like, and we appreciate Mr. Malkovich stopping by. Well, and like even people that are past, like Mr. Guinness like, yeah. stopping by. That's amazing. Well, that's that's the determined kind of man that Alec Guinness is, that, that he extends beyond the grave to, right. to continue his brand. Jason. Yes, Brendan. This is a podcast. This is a podcast. It's about British film. The most British of film. The top 100 British films of all time. Top 100 British films of the 20th century. Yes, and and also, even though last week's film was not very British at all. No. No. Not at all. But we're going to get more British this time. This week's film was very British. It's very British. Um, it stars actually one of my favorite British persons. Well, I mean, before we get to that though, Jason. Yes. We need to talk about last week. Let's talk about last week. Because last week, we talked about a film called The Killing Fields. Yes. Don't look at me like that, Jason. Well, just, you, you made it seem like it was a surprise that we talked about a film. You were like, oh, film? Every now and then, we talk about British comic books. <laughs> Captain Britain, our Cap- favorite. Captain Britain, played by uh, Chris... Hugh Grant. Okay. I was going to say, you could... Crabby. I'm absolutely so sorry. There was an emergency, and I thought I'd fly in and, <laughs> and help, help you all out, of course. Uh. It'd be great if it was Chris Hemsworth, though, because yeah. he does have an accent. So. <laughs> <laughs> not, of course, the correct one, but... No. But we'll not fault him for that at this time. It's not his fault. Let's talk about The Killing Fields. Ooh. So, I mean, yes. we got some comments about The Killing Fields. Some very sober comments, I assume? Uh, <laughs> no, they're all drunk. Oh, okay. Dr- uh, drunk voicemails. Here's the first <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me tell you something, okay? Camarouge isn't that bad. Why why did they fuck all those fields over by dumping all the bodies on them? That wasn't cool. (laughs) No, our first comment is from Vinny Romero. Mm. And he says, Well made and acted movie. Gets lost in the shuffle with all the president's men in spotlight uh, with movies about journalism. I think I said I'm not super crazy about it. But, again, I think, like we said, it's more important... Of a subject that yeah. they delved into than the content of the movie. Yeah, exactly, exactly. At you the know, end of the day, we can argue all day whether it's a good movie or not, but that's not the point. The point and we is, did argue all day. And we did argue that all day. That is a 23-hour episode. It's a very long episode. Yeah. I don't know how we made it. Uh, <laughs> and th- and congratulations to you all for making it through it. Um, all ten of you. All ten of you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, like it is a movie that people need to see. It's a, it's a movie that wants to tell a specific story. And, yeah, I mean, it sucks if the movie's not like super entertaining but again that's not what it's about this is a movie that is designed for you know high school history class and that's kind of it's kind of a hot take 
on our part, Jason, because this movie has like a 97% Rotten Tomatoes yeah, and like and a 90% audience or something like but that. But again, that it, it's like Schindler's List. It's not a movie that was like, yeah, let's let's get super fucked up and sit down with our buds and watch The Killing Fields. It's not that yeah. type of movie. But uh, but oh, that 97% is for what it represents. I mean, I, I don't know how say. you watch the movie. <laughs> uh, Jonas Priest... I'm assuming related to Judas. I would think so. Says, consider this, but there's never been a, a, a completely Asian actor to win an Academy Award for Best Actor. He won, Hang Nor won Best Supporting, but yeah. I don't think there's been, unless you count Ben Kingsley. I mean, he's... Do you count Ben Kingsley? Is he, is he I, I don't know his ethnic background. I, I know do. he's not, I know he's not old stock Brit, as our former Prime Minister Harper might say, but... Uh... Ugh, you quote that man. <laughs> well, he said old stock Canadians. But in my euphemism. In my lavish recording studio. That's right. I bring up Stephen Harper. Uh, what does Anita Chansey say, quite simply? Uh, Anita Chansey says The Killing Fields is one of the best movies ever. Can't argue with that endorsement. It's a pretty good endorsement. Pretty good endorsement. This is, a, this is kind of a crazy story, okay? So this sure. is from uh, Tyler McBee. And he says this. My mother-in-law escaped the fall of Saigon. And he says, I know the movie's about Cambodia. He says, with my sisters-in-law, two years old and four years old, and my wife, three months in the womb. We watched this with her sisters a few years ago, and the oldest was shaken by the memory of running through streets with dead bodies on their way to taking a boat out into the bay and drifting for over a day. A Taiwanese shipping vessel then picked them up and brought them to Taiwan. From there, they went to Guam for processing and were reunited with my father-in-law, who got out after escaping his South Vietnamese army post when Saigon fell to the north. That's God, insane. That's a crazy story. Crazy. Wow. I mean, that's a movie there. Yeah. Tyler McBee, get at the studios. I would suggest you email Steven Spielberg immediately. Yeah. Or uh, Werner Herzog. Ooh. Or Juve Bull. <laughs> Maybe not. Nope. <laughs> Don't need to do that. Just say something about him on Twitter and he'll block you. That's true. <laughs> so I kind of asked people what they thought about the... Uh, Sydney slash New York portion of the movie, mm-hmm. and Tyler McBee also had something to say about that. What did what did Tyler McBee say, Jason? He said, "I think it was necessary to advance the narrative, and not only because it's a true story, by showing us Sydney's comfortable life back in the states, juxtaposed against the misery and tragedy of Pran's nightmarish existence in Cambodia. We see the consequences of Sydney pressuring Pran to remain in Phnom Penh, uh, so his job would be easier." And not to completely dump on Shanberg, but we see that his efforts to rescue Pran, a man he obviously loves and respects. And for story continuity, not showing this aspect of the story would make the scenes of their reuniting at the end seem disjointed. Yeah, I can... Yeah, I guess we do need those scenes. Those scenes are pretty boring, unfortunately. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that. I do have a bit of... I do take a bit of an issue with a still shot of a TV playing for about five minutes at least... Of just footage of Cambodia. Like, that is that is not... It's not an interesting shot. Yeah, it was really strange. It was a really strange moment in the movie where it's like, okay, when is this going to end? Why are we still watching this uh, this assembly, this clip show? Yeah. Uh, and we're not even really watching the clip show. We're watching him watch the clip show sitting in a chair. And it would have been different if maybe it was, like, just a quick thing, like 30 seconds. Yeah. But it's long. That's long. Like, like I would expect that maybe from a movie in the 50s. Because, you know, you go back to those old movies and they show us something on screen like that you have to read and they leave it there for far too long. Guys, assume, they assume people were real stupid back then. It reminds me of, a, like, a joke from a Saturday Night Live sketch where Tracy Morgan is making a movie and they said, 
your movie is 27 minutes long, 13 of which is a close-up of a TV showing the movie Braveheart. <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, to emphasize our point, Lynn Ellingwood says, important in that this is the only film that re- really is about the Cambodian genocide. Yeah. However, uh, Aurora Erickson adds, and this is our last little comment here, said, Angelina Jolie just made one that was pretty good. People in the Cambodian refugee community in my city appreciated it, and apparently it's called First They Killed My Father. Actually, that was mentioned to me, uh, my uh, an old college friend of mine, Kyle McNeil. Shout out to you, Kyle, if you're listening out there. I don't know if that you can get us in China behind that great firewall, but he what? lives and what? teaches the Killing Fields uh, a while back. And yeah. he read the book that Angelina Jolie had based, uh, or the movie that she had made was based on. That's pretty cool, Kyle, that you got to go there. Well, Jason, that are those are the comments, but now comes the point where we compare. Yeah. We compare and contrast. All right. So The Killing Fields was number 100. Yes, sir. On the BFI. Squeaked in there. It's just by the skin of its teeth. Yes. Um, however, on the AFI... What is the comparing movie on the AFI list, Brendan? Well, Jason, the movie on the AFI at number 100 is uh, the Charlton Heston starring Ben-Hur. Wow. Yeah. So let's say let's say this. I would argue that Ben Hur is not nearly as important a film as the Killing Bite Fields. Bite your tongue. <laughs> I would say that the subject matter is less important. I mean, there are plenty of movies about you know Roman stuff. However, I will say on its own, Ben Hur is a fucking great movie. That's Charles Heston good. is great in it. Like the chariot scene is classic. It's so well done. Like that is a good movie. That movie is in two five five to one widescreen. Brendan, was this movie the Killing Fields in two five five to one widescreen? I certainly don't think so. So you're saying, as as just as a film, you're saying Ben Hur is better. I'm saying it was the widest film. No, I will say that I, I'll I'll just say that I think Ben Hur was a better movie. Um, I is think Ben Hur is still like a half. Ben Hur is a better afternoon at the theater. Ben Hur is still a half an hour too long. Is it? Yeah, I just watched it not that long ago. The uh, last half hour really dragged. Well, it's like speed. a four-hour movie. It's still paced yeah. fine until yeah. the last half hour. Yeah. Oh, the King of Kings. Triple H. Yeah, that's who he was talking about. That's who we didn't see his face, but that was Triple H on the cross. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, let's get into it, Jason. Let's talk about a Clockwork Orange. orange. Number 81 on the BFI Top 100, as composed in 1999, the year of our Lord. The last Uh, year British films were made. The last year British films were made. Uh, 1971's Stanley Kubrick directed A Clockwork Orange. Orange, 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 orange. I don't have time to edit the echo, so, you know. This, yeah, we're going to have some fun with this one. Yeah, because this is, above all, is a fun, lighthearted romp. A romp is the best way to describe it. Actually, romp would probably be an appropriate way to describe this movie in some ways. Well, and I'm just going to issue like a little bit of a content warning ahead of time, guys. This is a v- movie that is very frank. 
Uh, very dark. Very dark. There, we, we, we will be discussing some scenes that depict some pretty intense, nasty uh, rape. Let's just be straight up and say. And it, it, there is a strong possibility that we'll make an off-color joke about it. So and just be prepared. We'll try not to. Well, but... Yes, but I can't guarantee it. It may happen. Jason, what is this movie all about? Well, this movie is a is a translation of, of a book, uh, also called A Clockwork Orange, by British author Anthony Burgess. Now, mm-hmm. this, uh, this movie uh, stars our friend Malcolm McDowell, whom you might remember from Star Trek Generations, as well as Wing Commander 3, The Price of... Uh, sorry, Wing Commander 3, The Heart of the Tiger, and Wing Commander 4, The Price of Freedom. Uh, Malcolm McDowell... And nothing else. And nothing He's else. not anything else. Not anything else. Malcolm McDowell plays Alex, our humble narrator, as he likes to refer to himself, mm-hmm. and Alex... Brendan is the fucking worst. Yeah, he's a he's a garbage. Human he's being. a garbage human being. Uh, and I'll probably mention as we go through just some differences I know from the book. I read the book many years ago, and I did a little bit of refreshing on it. But uh, one thing we got to point out: Malcolm McDowell, when this movie was made, what was this? Nineteen seventy. Seventy one. Seventy one. So Malcolm McDowell, I think at this point, has got to be a good. Almost, probably about 27 or 28. Playing a 17-year-old. Playing a 17-year-old, but in the book, he's 15. Okay. Alex, and, I, and there'll be a few more things that we talk about. I want to say right off the bat, yeah. I don't really buy him as a 17-year-old. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, he certainly looks very young and smooth, uh, uh, and maybe that's why they hired him, but uh, yeah, I still don't buy him as 17. Oh, that's the grossest casting call ever. <laughs> Look at someone young and smooth. <laughs> Oi, mate, I think I could do that. I don't think Malcolm McDowell talks like that. Good eye, mate. Well, there's Malcolm, all Can, from Australia. Do, do you want to hear my Malcolm McDowell impression based solely on one word from Star Trek The Next Generation? Yes. Why? Wasn't that pretty good? I nailed it. Now, we'll see, and we'll find out next week how accurate that is, because I'm looking to get Malcolm to come in. Well, well, maybe. If, we'll if, see. If he does, we'll, we'll, see. we'll, we'll see, see who we can get. Yeah, so, we'll anyways, as I was saying, Alex is the worst. He is a member of a gang. Him and his droogies, as he calls them. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so our film opens up with Alex and Dim and Georgie Boy and Pete. Well, yeah, and like, why don't I play like just the first little bit of opening narration? Yes, this iconic first bit of uh, as the camera slowly pulls back from Alex's eyes just and and pulls down the entirety of the room, we hear the following. This is literally the first thing, first dialogue we hear in the movie. Voiceover. There was me. That is Alex and my three droogs. That is Pete, Georgie and Dim. And we sat in the Corova milk bar trying to make up our Razudos what to do with the evening. The Corova milk bar sold Milk Plus. Milk Plus Velocet or Synthamesk or Drencrum, which is what we were drinking. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. So right off the bat, we are hearing some words we don't know. Yeah, and th- this is what is known as NADSAT. Mm-hmm. This is a this is a a kind of a mashup uh, slang language uh, between English and Russian. A slanguage. A slanguage, if you will, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Um, and it uses a lot of like Russian inspired words uh, throughout the course of the movie, uh, and, and also English slang as well, kind of mixed in there. It was invented for the book, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and then yeah, Burgess yeah. basically came up with it for the book. And you'll, you'll hear like uh, first as he talks about uh, what he meant. Well. Um, the viddy. The viddy. That means to look at something. Yeah. Uh, uh, or, in and uh, out. 
the old in the old in and out. I mean, that's yeah. pretty pretty yeah. obvious. Um, one that comes up later, Devotchka Yarbles, lady Yarbles is balls. Yeah, uh, it's it's. I mean, here's the thing. Contextually, it's pretty. If you watch the movie, you may not understand the words, but contextually, you'll figure it out. Pretty. That's quick. what I was gonna say. Like, I know we're just get the plot right now, but yeah. I will say that the movie doesn't make it super confusing. Like, no. you can basically tell what he's talking you, about. You figure it out. If despite you're not, using words that you're like, huh? If, if you could parse the British accents, which we absolutely can because we're experts. Yes. Uh, then you'll be fine. We are actually both British people. We're just doing our best Canadian accents right absolutely. now. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so back to the plot. So, yeah. Alex. Yeah. So, the movie opens up with Alex and his droogs in the bar. They're drinking milk plus, which in this world is a is ba- is milk. It's it's regular old dairy milk, but it's laced with different types of drugs depending on oh, what you would like. I didn't even know. Which that. is why he says it makes you sharp and makes you ready to go for a bit of the old ultraviolence. It's that, their version of drinking booze. That makes sense to me now. Yeah. So uh, so they they get fucked up on this milk plus at the Malaco milk bar, and they want to go engage in some old ultraviolence uh, when it suits them, uh, and they do. Uh, I believe the first thing they do is they go beat the shit out of a hobo mm-hmm. who's uh, hanging out on the street and singing. Uh, singing and just being a drunk. And but he somehow has the moral high ground over them. But they, yeah, Alex basically Alex and the Droogs beat the fuck out of him. And they don't kill him. They don't kill him. But no. they beat the shit out of him. They for, for no real reason. No. But they and then they continue their kind of uh, rampage and they steal a fancy future seventies retro car. And they have themselves a bit of a joyride. They're driving through the country, having a grand old time. Very they, rear projection. Yeah, it's great. And then they roll up on this country estate that helpfully has home out front of it. Uh, so they, I guess so the people that live there know that it's home. I think there's probably more to it behind it than that. Oh, maybe. So Alice goes up to the door. He says, oh, there's been an accident. I don't know why I'm making him Irish all of a sudden. Oh, I'm oh, Alex. There's been an accident. Oh, this is a clockwork orange it is. <laughs> It's like, there's been an accident in the road, and uh, we really need help. And, and the woman's like, well, we don't really open the door for strangers. He's like, please, help, help. And uh, her her husband, uh, or significant other, who is sitting writing at a typewriter... Who is like, conservatively 30 years older? Yeah, easily. <laughs> um, she asks him what to do, and he says, well, I suppose we should let them in, shouldn't we? And so she opens the door, and immediately Alex comes in, and they start causing trouble. They're knocking stuff over. They're causing a ruckus. They get into the main room, and of course the writer's like, what's going on? And uh, they proceed to start beating the shit out of the writer on the ground, giving him boot licks. Uh, and we're going to hear a little bit of what that sounds like uh, well, as this is going on. Yes, and I want you to listen to uh, what Alex likes to hum a tune to. What am I trying to say? To, to sing? <laughs> yeah, there's a little song. What music does Alex like? Well, the Beethoven, but also this. Yeah, and that, that confused me a little bit. But anyway, <laughs> let's do this. this is, he's kicking them at the same time. Doopy 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 doopy
so that scene we just listened to that's very disturbing by itself because he's because they, they are they're kicking the shit out of this guy and knocking his shit over and yep. they've got him on the floor and he's watching as Alex proceeds to basically cut the dress off of his wife cuts off uh, the parts of fabric in front of her breasts so that they're poking through the dress and then begins cutting up the way and then eventually rapes her yeah um, the rape is off screen yeah yeah it, but it, it's definitely it's definitely obvious. well no yeah. he, you, you see him even pulling down his pants yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. like there's um, no way that's not what happened <laughs> no and so th- this is you know this is a good scene showing how brutal these guys are now I also forgot to mention I think before this there's a scene where they get into a fight with another gang oh a crazy gang fight crank, yeah they have a gang fight with a bunch of Nazi gang gang members was um, that when they, were, they were Nazis I didn't even catch that yeah the, wow. no the, well because if you notice the hats and stuff they're all wearing German officers hats with iron eagles on them and they were in the process of raping uh, another like yeah. a woman and so you think like oh okay so they don't go the droogs are bad but they don't go that far no they do they do they didn't give a shit about her she just took off once the uh once billy boy and his gang realized that uh, alex had shown up yeah and his gang so then they had to have their gang fight but yeah so back back to home for a second in the country the writer's been had the shit kicked out of him uh the woman has been raped and uh after that it's like well i guess it's time to go home so Alex uh, goes home and, and as he does often every night to where the apartment where he and his parents live, his mother, who I, I'm not sure if she's a waitress or, well, there was a woman that looked like her in a restaurant where she was a waitress. I don't know that that was her, but she got purple hair. She looks like Mrs. Slocum from already being served. And then his dad, they live in an apartment and Alex goes home and he falls asleep. He gets up in the morning. Well, he doesn't get up. His mother tries to wake him up and tell him to go to school. He said, oh, mom, I can't. I just got a pain in me gulliver. I'll just sleep in. I'll be right as rain. And uh, she doesn't really believe him, but she, what's she going to do, right? And yeah. so the father and the mother leave, and Alex gets up, and as he's walking through the house, going to, I assume, either take a piss or get some breakfast, he walks by a room and then stops and then walks back and sees a man sitting there, and that man is a, uh, a truancy officer. Yeah, he's like this parole, yeah. He has a weird-ass name that I don't remember. Uh, I don't know. I just know he's very sexually inappropriate. Very sexually inappropriate. He basically, in the course of this scene, tells Alex that he knows what's going on. He knows Alex has been up to bullshit, and he better keep his fucking nose clean. But in in the course of doing so, now we have to mention Alex had just got out of bed, so he's just wearing his skivvies. Um, And at some point, the truancy officer grabs him and pulls him down onto the bed with them, and they're lying back on the bed, and then he punctuates what he's saying by very, very hard grabbing Alex's crotch. Yeah. So much so that Alex has to get up and kind of like take a moment to like recenter himself because he got grabbed in the dick so hard. It's um, it's it's uh, interesting that this happens to him shortly after he did it to someone else. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're getting a little violated there. So, yeah. But Alex, you know, Alex is, is Alex. He doesn't give a shit. He just, he goes on with his day and he decides he's going to go to the music store today rather than go to school. So he shows up to the music store and is and is looking to purchase micro cassettes. I assume of uh, of Beethoven because in this future micro cassettes are the are the top of the line uh, uh, physical media. And while he's there, he happens to run into a couple of uh, rather young looking ladies who, for some reason, are eating uh, phallic ice pops in the store. And one is bent over, and it looks very sad. Jason, do you mind if I play a little bit of the music in this scene? Because I really like. Oh, this. I, you could play the whole soundtrack right now, and I would be fine with it. Okay. Thank you. 
Goddamn, Brendan, I love the music in this movie. Yeah. That soundtrack is... It, it's it's interesting because it, it's timeless and yet dated at the same time. And it was supposed to be future music of the past. It's a future's past. It's like a remix of Beethoven. Yeah, yeah. Which... They're, they weren't super far off in predicting, because we do that with music a lot now. Yeah, I mean, we don't usually just straight up translate classical music to synth music, but damn, No, but I cool. mean, <laughs> we do, yeah, anyway. anyway so that, so that, that very, it's a very cool song, it's very, a bit loud and grating. So he has uh, some So sex. he's hearing that loud in the store. He meets these ladies, picks them up, says, oh, let's go back to my place, and he takes them back to his place and has the fastest sex you'll ever see in any film ever. Consensual sex, too. Consensual sex, which is fascinating because, Brendan, I'd like to point out a fact to you that in the book, remember I said how Alex is 15? Uh, in the book, those two girls are preteens, actually 10 years 10 old. 10 years old. And uh, he drugs them and rapes them. Yep. So, so they changed that. They had to change that. Don't think it was a bad idea to change that. Probably uh, would have been harder to film and uh, harder to release. I think um, the age thing makes it, yeah. But yeah. the other thing, too, is the fact that they have consensual sex changes a lot about the movie. Like, mm. it's just... A, it, well, I, I don't know, because he's such a shit throughout the rest of the movie. I think at this point, it just it reinforces how charismatic he is, because he is. He's super charismatic. He's got this smile... You know, he's, he's, he has a confidence to him. There's a reason why he's super evil in this movie, and it's because he's he's the sort of person that can get shit accomplished because with his smile and with his, his easy words, you know? Yeah. And and getting laid is, is just, you know, one of the many things that he can do with that personality. So, anyways, back to the film. So, uh, after, he's, after he's finished uh, with the ladies, he goes downstairs, meets up with his droogies. Droogs uh, are having some issues. Uh, they're not really... Uh, Dim, uh, specifically, is having some issues with Alex's leadership. And uh, Alex listens to him uh, with that smug smile on his face that Alex so often has. And Georgie, too. Georgie gets in on it, and Georgie's like, well, I have plans. We could, we could up our game. We don't have to keep doing this petty criminal shit. We can get better at this. And Alex is like, okay, well, you know, that's uh, interesting. Maybe we'll talk about it. And then they leave, and then Alex proceeds to beat the fuck out of them, uh, and dump them into the water, and, you know, just reassert his leadership in the style of old tyrants. His power. Like, it's yeah. all about his power. Exactly. It's about maintaining his position as leader, because that's, that's what like, he is. Yeah, well, I mean, look at look at what he does. He he beats people up and rapes yeah. them. Like, that's all, that's a, that's a total power. Actually, and, and this this insurrection kind of started earlier in the movie when Dim made... Star Trek insurrection? Yes, yeah, which is a, a, a an okay Star Trek movie. Um, <laughs> I knew I was going to get a review from you. <laughs> uh, so this insurrection actually started a little bit earlier in the movie when they were at the Malaco Milk Bar, and... Uh, there was a lady singing opera, singing Ode to Joy, Beethoven's yeah, Ode to Joy. Be Beethoven, yeah, yeah. And uh, Dim made some comment about it, and Alex full on whacked him with his cane, like where he just fucking hit him with it. He's and like, Dim was not happy about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but Dim, as we know, is a bit dim, so. Hey! So he feels pain because he's stupid. You all feel pain? That means you're stupid. All right. Jeez. Jeez. I really want to turn our audience against me. I Jeez. want to be the heel of this podcast. Uh, Jason's got his <laughs> soapbox out. So Alex beats the fuck out of them and seemingly reasserts his position. So they decide to go do another crime because they love doing crimes. So this this crime, they're going to do a similar crime to before. They're going to rob somebody. So they go to this house. There's a, a lady that lives there. And Alex uh, basically shimmies up a, a rain gutter or something and climbs into an upper roof into the house. He gets in, and there's this lady who is known as the cat lady in literature surrounding the movie because she doesn't have a name, but she happens to own a bunch of cats. Um, and, and is also super into art. 
some very explicit art that's yeah. on the walls. Uh, well, speaking of that, Jason. You might say her art is very vaginal, Jeffrey. Um, well, vaginal and uh, phallic. And phallic, too. Well, yeah. let, me, let me ask you, Jason. Yes. How does he kill her? Well, that's an interesting story, Brendan. So he goes into the room. She, she of course, is like, who the hell are you? Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. And he's like, oh, well, I'm just here to... I'm going to... Uh, rob you and steal stuff. He doesn't say that, but that's the implication, right? Um, and it's very on the nose screenplay. <laughs> so he's doing, uh, you know, he's doing his little Alex dance or whatever, and she's not having it, and she grabs uh, a bust off the uh, off off a pedestal to give her something. She starts swinging it at Alex, and it's Beethoven, so, and it's Beethoven. Yeah. So Alex grabs the nearest thing to him, which he's been playing with, which is a very large, possibly made of glass, penis and balls. It's just a big statue of a penis and balls, and he picks it up, and he eventually beats her to death with it. As you promised you would do to me on this episode. Absolutely. And we're going to get there. <laughs> Hold tight. Wait a second, what? Uh, so so he beats her to death, uh, goes downstairs, opens the front door, is like, Droogies, we're in. Let's go do this. And Dim pulls out, I think it's Dim, uh, or maybe it's Georgie, one of them pulls out a bottle of milk, appropriate, and fucking smashes Alex across the fate with, face with it. Breaks yep. the bottle right across his uh, face and knocks him down to the ground and they take off laughing. And it's like the, their insurrection is finally complete and they're going to leave Alex there. And Alex, yeah, this is where Alex gets uh, caught. Their insurrection is so great that it's going to take him generations to recover. I hate you. I hate you so much. Thank you. Can't even invoke a good Star Trek movie. You can invoke a bad one and a mediocre one. Well, no, because he's one. in Generations. That yeah, was the, I know. Come I know. On. But still, I don't care. It's a bad movie, Jason. and only I'm allowed to invoke it. You want me to start talking about Whoopi Goldberg? Because I will. Carry on. All right. Up the Clockwork Orange. So, <laughs> so uh, in, we have a brief, uh, a, kind of a shot of a prison, and Alex explains that uh, he got sentenced to 14 years in prison for this. Yeah, because uh turns out he murdered that yeah. woman. Yeah, oh, no, murdered her dead. Weird, because I wouldn't think you'd murder someone by just impaling them with a statue. Well, I mean, that's the thing about human body. It's weird. You could just If you just hit somebody the wrong way in the wrong place at the wrong time, they're oh, gone. Oh, no, I'm being sarcastic. Like, yeah. I don't know how he wouldn't have thought she would get killed. Well, I mean, I don't think he cared. I don't. Th I really don't think he gave a shit. But I think this is the first time he's murdered Yeah, where he specifically murdered someone. Um, it's also weird that the movie kind of decides this is the worst crime, because he's already Well, like, this is the one he got people. caught for. Yeah, it's just like, it's, yeah. Yeah. They don't know that he necessarily did the other ones. Yeah. Uh, so so he's sentenced to 14 years in prison, and while he's in there, he, I guess he must feel like he can get into a, a better position if he ingrates himself, ingratiates himself with the prison chaplain. Yes. Uh, so he does. Going to the chaplain. And, and we're going to get married by the chaplain. <laughs> So so yeah so basically he gets to sit up on the on the riser with the chaplain I don't know what he's supposed to be doing but he hangs out with the chaplain a lot uh, he helps him out and it seems the chaplain protects him from getting raped by the other gang members or not yep. gang members but prisoners because there's at least a couple of them making eyes at him which again the by the service. way we are not sympathizing with this character no. at all no way, as an audience no, we watch this he's still terrible well, just just because he's an awful person doesn't mean he deserves to get raped but you know what he probably does but what? that's not for us to decide <laughs> no even though I've just decided what <laughs> uh, it is not a uh, tit-for-tat no. thing. No, it's a no eye for an eye. So, in the prison, he, he gets chatting with the chaplain, and he asks him, he says, I've heard rumors that there's a new treatment. The, Ludovico. The, the Ludovico technique, which can cure you and send you, and you'll be allowed to go back into society you get out of jail early. Yeah. And so, the priest uh, kind of hums and haws about it. But, but then, during an inspection where all the prisoners are lined up, 
the uh, minister, uh, minister of the interior, minister of the some kind sure. of political what, dude. His name is Frederick. I know that much. Yeah, uh, but he he's a government minister, and he comes in, and, and they're apparently looking for you know possible well, subjects for this experiment. Yeah, and Alex basically steps out of line and, and makes a makes an impression on the minister, um, speaking up and saying that he was interested in it, whatever, and they immediately choose him. Because he's got that smile, he's got that charisma, he's immediately able to wrap these people around his finger to get what he wants. So, he volunteers for this uh, Ludovico treatment, and now, the treatment itself is, uh, it's kind of tapping into, like, Skinner, BF Skinner stuff, like aversion therapy. Um, so they, they, so what they do, and, and if you've ever watched an Oscars broadcast, you've seen this scene, because it always comes up whenever they talk about the greatest movies of all time, they show this scene, uh, where Alex is strapped into a chair in a straitjacket, and his eyes are being pried open by metal, almost like uh, bent coat hangers that are just kind of keeping his eyes open with a doctor sitting there administering eye drops uh, while he is forced to watch films that contain violence and sex and are scored. Uh, and he's also drugged up in this situation as well. And and the idea is, is that as he's exposed to these uh, sexual and violent films, that he's eventually going to develop an inversion to them. That he's not going to be able to uh, watch them without something happening. And that does happen. He eventually starts becoming nauseous from these films. And at one point while he's getting the treatment, uh, he's watching a film of some Nazis and Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is playing underneath. And that sets him off. He's, he starts yelling. He's basically like, no, why? Why would you play Beethoven's Ninth? It's such a, you know, because he loves Beethoven. Beethoven's like his ultimate music thing, right? Yeah. So... Uh, the doctor is listening to him and he's like, well, why do you have to use Beethoven? Can't we do anything else? I don't want to not like Beethoven. And the doctor's just like, sorry, <laughs> that's how it has to be. Uh, <laughs> by the way, if you're wondering how... It can't be helped is what he says. Yeah. If you're wondering how in 1971 they achieved this effect of his eyes being held open, uh, they did it by holding his eyes open. Yeah, they literally did it. Yeah, they actually the man uh, administering eye drops into his eyes every second or whatever. Yeah, uh, that was a real, that was a real like physician. Probably really giving him saline to keep oh, his eyes. Yeah, no, hundred yeah. percent. We we see the full extent of this um, when Alex is hauled up on stage in front of the media and the government ministers and specifically the minister that has come to see him. The humiliation scene. Uh, yeah, it's a humiliation scene essentially, but it is also a demonstration of the of the effectiveness, mm -hmm. quote unquote, of the Ludovico technique. Yeah. Where so they bring him out on stage and they bring a gentleman out who basically begins to threaten him. Uh, and do violence to him. And Alex, being Alex, starts to get angry about it and wants to fucking hit him back, but immediately just is overcome by waves of nausea. And he basically just crumples to the floor and can't do anything. And so the guy goes off, they bring a lady out, and this lady's not wearing a top. You can see everything. And Alex is very much wants to grab those beautiful breasts that are in front of his face, and as he tries to again, the nausea hits him. Right. And he goes down, and everybody applauds. And the government minister is very happy about this, but the priest isn't so sure. And the priest is like, how is this a treatment? You know, he doesn't have a choice. He isn't making the choice to be good. He's just being forced to be good. How is how is taking away his free will? And the minister's, or how is that helpful? And the minister's just like, this isn't about that. This is about solving crime. And if it works, then we're going to do it. Like, yeah, it's not about helping the individual. Yeah, he doesn't give a shit about Alex's free will. He doesn't give a shit that Alex is a bad person still. He just cares about making sure that Alex doesn't do anything. Yeah. It's like it's 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 basically jail of the mind. Yeah, <coughs> exactly. It's it's a prison of the mind, and you know, given the opportunity, he would immediately go do what he always does, but he can't because of this physical limitation. Yeah, 
So they release Alex from jail, and he immediately goes home to visit his parents because where else is he going to go? And he gets there, and they're you know they're weirded out. Um, they're very weirded out to see him. You think somebody would have called ahead to let them know that he was you know getting out of jail? But hey, your murderer's son is coming. Your murderer's son is coming home, and Alex is rather disappointed to find that there is a border living with the parents now. Uh, who lives in Alex's room. Mm-hmm. And this is a very judgy boarder who has no problem standing up and telling Alex that he basically that he's a piece of shit and he's uh, put his parents through crap and I was gonna say, sweet people. I was going to say... Um, he's uh, right. I mean, yeah. he's right. He's I'm not com- saying he's not right. He's completely in the right Oh, he's completely judgy. in the right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's just, he's just an annoying guy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it just doesn't look very much fun. Justifiably is what I'm looking yeah. for. Yeah. So and they and they basically sold off all his stuff and cleared his room out because I mean they thought he was going to jail for fourteen years. So what were they going to do? Keep his room the same as it always was? Um, and his snake is gone. So he leaves because what's he going to do? So he leaves. In the book, I think he's ostensibly going out to f- try to find a way to kill himself. But in the movie, it's not made clear. I assume I assumed watching it that he was trying to find a place to live or maybe find somebody to hook up with to just you know set himself up. But he's out and about, and while he's out and about, he runs into the Irish drunk from the beginning of the film, the hobo... That they assaulted, yeah. That assaulted... And the hobo uh, starts talking to him and then recognizes him. I don't know what he says. Does he say something or does he look at him in a certain way or... Uh, no, he just... Just kind of like... He just recognizes him from... He recognizes uh, From just looking at him. Yeah. And so this causes the hobo to get all of his hobo buddies that are nearby to come and they start beating the shit out of Alex. Again, absolutely deserved at this point. Alex deserves yeah. to have the shit kicked out of him. But then... But then... Thankfully, for at least a brief moment, a couple police officers show up. They get all the homeless people away and haul Alex up. But however, those police however, officers... those police officers are Dim and Georgie Boy, his because, former droogs. Because remember, he went to jail about five years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. so they were never caught for anything. Yeah, absolutely. And they decided to, I guess, join society. It, it, I mean, it, it, it's part of the satire of the movie that these two fucking people end up in the police force of all places. Right. Like, and it's like, oh, yeah, I can see that. Also, uh, in the book, the cops are Dim and Billy Boy. Billy Boy being the leader of the Nazi gang from earlier in the movie. I get better this way. Yeah, no, it makes more sense. Because, I mean, we don't really see much of that Nazi gang. And I mean, it kind of says a whole... Uh, yeah, but it kind of says another... It kind of makes another statement with that in that, like, the, I guess the gangs didn't really hate each other. They just did it because they were different gangs. Or they or they hated the uniform, not the person. Like, it was, yeah. about, it was about the droogs fighting the Nazis or whatever, like... But do you really think they cared about what the Nazis stood for? Uh, that's a good question. I, but they were wearing a lot of Nazi regalia, so I don't know. Yeah. I feel like they just didn't like them because it was another gang on their turf. That that too. Much That's like true. how. Oh yeah, were... no, I'm not saying that, that the Droogs had a problem with them being Nazis. They just wanted to beat the fuck out of them. And and you know what? Honestly, yeah. Nazis are way easier to fuck up than everybody else because they're fucking Nazis, Brendan. Oh, I, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not advocating for Nazism. Are you willing to go on record and say that you do not support Adolf Hitler and his agenda? <sighs> yes. Thank you. I will note that in the log, Jason. That was a big moment for me. <laughs> Congratulations, Brendan. You've made a, a great leap forward to use another tyrant's term. In just seven days, <laughs> I can make you a man. Are you Neil Diamond? <laughs> what? Are you Neil Diamond? That was uh, Rocky Horror. Oh. Sorry. Oh. That's a movie. Oh, sweet Carola. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it turns out it's Georgie and Dim, and they're like, "Oh, look at this guy, he's Alex, oh Alex," and they. But they treat him real well, right? Oh yeah, they treat him great. They drag his ass out into the middle of nowhere in the country and attempt to drown him in a trough. Uh huh. 
uh, and once they've le- once it's no longer fun for them, they basically just drop, just dump them on the ground and leave them there in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So, in the middle of nowhere, he wanders. He's wandering around looking for help. He comes upon a home in the country, dun, dun, a home dun. that out front has a sign that says home. Dun dun dun. And we get a lovely mirroring of the scene from the opening part of the movie, where we see the writer in frame and then the camera slides over and we see another person going to the door. In the in the first part of the movie, that was the writer slide over, his wife goes to the door. Yep. This time, the writer is in a wheelchair, it slides over and we have uh, Darth Vader who walks out and goes to open the door. David Prowse, the, the man in the outfit. Yeah, the, the, physical, costume. the physical Darth Vader who is, I think, I believe he's playing a muscular Austin Powers. Yes, yes. Uh, Julian uh, is... Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's the vibe I got. The, yeah, Mr. Alexander's manservant. I mean, yes, the the writer's name is Alexander. By the way, I don't know if it comes up in the movie. It is it is mentioned in the book. I, I think I think it comes up at some point. Um, so but yeah, he answers the door and lets, lets door, Alex in. Lets him in. He looks all fucked up. But Mr. Alexander is a very liberal guy, and the most key part is he doesn't recognize him. No. So, but he does know about the Ludovico technique. He does know about Ludovico technique. He'd been in the papers, and he recognizes Alex from that. He knows that he's the guy from this thing. So he brings him in. He is not. He is clearly somebody who's opposed to this. Uh, is a much more liberal leaning than the current government of the day. Yep. Uh, and wants to help Alex as best he can. And so he like he he's like, oh, we'll get you some food, India. We'll let you have a bath, whatever. Um, so he sends Alex off to have a bath. And this is where Alex makes his mistake. A big mistake. A big mistake. He's uh, lying in the bathtub. And as one. he's lying in the bathtub, I'm singing in the rain. Just singing in the rain. Meanwhile, Alexander hears this. He's on the phone, and he doesn't hear him. He's talking on the phone to someone. And when he hangs up the phone, he starts. He hears it, and he listens. And he kind of rolls over in his wheelchair, over into the corner, and we get a below shot of his face, and he, it looks like he's having a seizure. And so Alex comes out. He's at the table. He's in a, a bathrobe. He's got some pasta in front of him, and he's having a bite to eat. And Alexander rolls in, and Alexander's demeanor has changed substantially. He's got this look on his face that you cannot mistake for anything but just pure unadulterated hatred drink this wine drink this wine boy uh and he's like and i think alex at this point knows that something is he knows something is amiss yeah because he's like oh it's because he knows where he is he's not stupid he knows where he is he knows the house he's in and he knows the guy but he's starting to wonder if the guy knows and he he stalls a long time before drinking he does stall a long time before drinking the wine and and in the room at that point we have uh we have alexander we have julian the manservant we also have two friends of mr alexander's who showed up, yep. I guess, to, to, ostensibly to ask Alex questions, Alex questions. And one of the questions they asked him is about the Ludovico technique, and he tells them about how like he was presented with images and stuff, and how now he can't hear Beethoven's Ninth, which is his, like one of his favorite pieces of music, without feeling nauseous. Um, and so eventually they manage to convince him to drink the wine, and he fucking passes out. And so Julian, being a big man, drags him and locks him in a room upstairs. And we see Alex waking up, and hearing the Ninth Symphony being blasted, and the camera pans down through the floor, and we see Mr. Alexander looking up at the ceiling with a reel-to-reel in front of him, and two speakers pointed up at the ceiling, and he's got this just look of just insanity on his face almost, like anger and revenge and just joy all mixed into one as he plays this music. I also feel, I just want to say real quick though, I also feel like this was almost going to be their original plan. Because what happens here is he's driven to try to commit suicide. 
Yeah, well, he wants to get out of the room, and he has no the door's locked. He can't get into the room. The but only I, option is to jump out the window. But I think that's what they were going to do. Oh yeah, no doubt they were trying to get him to kill himself. Absolutely, so to torture could, him. Yeah, as well so as they could point out the uh, dangers of the Ludovico technique. So this movie is telling you right now... Oh, so now, you're saying that there's, there, there's a greater political purpose in addition to the personal revenge. I yes. can see that. Yeah, yeah. Again, given, I, I didn't think about that, but given his position and his views, Alexander, that makes sense. Yeah, I... Th- ooh, I just know... Alexander, and his name is Alex. Yeah. That's interesting. I I hope I'm right. I hope I'm not mixing No, that is up. right. He is Mr. <laughs> Alexander. But yeah, no, I think even if he didn't realize it was uh, Alex and it was someone else, just the, the victim of the Ludovico mm. technique, I think he was still going to try to drive that man to suicide... And then have be like, oh, look what the government did to this yeah. poor man. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think he just enjoys it more now that it's now he knows that it, it's and he knows Alex. who it is, and he knows. And he and he at some point tells Alex that, or or he mentions the fact that his wife had killed herself after this. After no, that she rape. she died of uh, she died of um, like pneumonia or something. She? she says, yeah, but he he says she died of like this, but really she died because you know of what happened because she ago. gave up essentially. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Why did I think she said it? Maybe, maybe it's just that would be what I would do if I was writing the movie. But I didn't, oh, I thought so. you meant... I mean, that's that's what I would do. That's why was... I'm not a writer, is what I'm saying. Well, you, uh, you you know what? Just send me that last draft and I'll see what I can do. All right. Okay? So Alex tosses his ass out the window. Boom. Yeah. Tries to commit suicide. Wakes up in the hospital. He's not dead. He's not dead. He's got a lot of broken bones. Yeah. But he's not dead. And uh, he gets a visit from the minister, mm-hmm. Frederick who comes in and proceeds to uh, uh, have a chat with him as well as feed him. Uh, and basically says, like, hey, sorry about all this. It's a mistake on our part. We'll set you up with a job. You'll be good to go. You won't have to go back to prison. Yeah. This is all our fault. Just don't just, just don't throw us under the bus. Just don't throw the government under the bus, because an election's coming soon, and we really don't need that. Yeah. Uh, and Alex basically agrees. and But he's discovered at this point in... in that he no longer, he's no longer sickened. And this is after psychological tests and everything. Yeah. He realizes that he is no longer sickened by sex and violence. That it doesn't cause nausea anymore. And this is right at the end of the film. And what, and, and, uh, and we, we see a scene of, I guess, I, according to what I read, at the time it was hard to tell, and over the years I haven't been sure, but what is a scene of Alex being ridden by a topless lady... Uh, while a group of people in top hats and tails stand around them, uh, clapping their hands. He's having this little fantasy and uh, about the things he's going to do. And the movie ends with Alex saying the iconic line, I was cured, all right. And that's where the movie ends. Now, now, before I go any further, I have to say, that uh, this is where the American edition of the book ends. The original American edition of the book ends with this exact part. I was cured, all right. But that's not the actual it's, end of the book, like Brendan. doing Alec Guinness for a second. Yeah. I was cured, all right. It was me. I was cured. I was Alex DeLarge, a rapist. I was a rapist. Oh, yes. And, and by the way, quick fact. The reason he's called Alex DeLarge in the movie is because in the book... <laughs> While he's raping those ten-year-old girls, he refers to himself as Alex the Large. Ooh. Yeah, so that's a reference to that in the movie because he doesn't actually have a last name in the book. Uh, uh, what was I going to say there? Oh say yeah, I was scared. All right, so so that is where it ends in the original American version of the novel and in the film um, and in the book. Right? There's no other ending. Uh, oh. Here's the thing, though. Okay. So when the book was originally written and published in England, there is a 21st chapter of the book, and in that 21st chapter, 
which takes place after this. Alex, uh, he gets out, he goes back to his old ways, he starts a new gang, he gets some new gang members, um, but he starts to realize that the thrill of it all is gone. He starts to have like a changing moment, and by the end of the chapter, he's kind of changed his ways. He sees, I think, I don't know if it's Pete, or one of his old gang members, he sees that he, the guy has like, gotten out of it, he has a family now and everything, and Alex decides that he wants to do that. He wants to get out of this, he wants to raise a family and, and kind of be a normal person again. And there's this redemption there, in the film, yeah, that is not there in the American movie because uh, uh, the American publisher didn't think American audiences would buy that. After what's happened in the last twenty chapters, all of a sudden this happens in chapter twenty-one. Nobody's going to buy that. Stanley Kubrick agreed, I and agree. that's why the movie is that way. I say, I'm on board with that too. Yeah. Uh, um, now I know that Anthony Burgess himself is not particularly fond of this book. It's a, he he thinks of it as kind of an early thing he did in his career that was not really that good. That it, it has been kind of over over kind of fetishized by other people and made into a movie he didn't really like very much. I I mean, I I don't know, because I read he was he was fairly satisfied with the movie. That's what I read today anyways, that he okay. wasn't particularly fond of it, especially because it doesn't have that redemption, and that redemption for him was a key part of that story. Well, because I think... I think what happened... What I read is, like, he wasn't happy that they took that out of the book, but as for the movie, like, he thought it was a, like, fine adaptation. He wasn't Stephen King uh, mm. hating on a Kubrick movie. <laughs> But yeah, so that's that's the movie there, and, and it remains one of the greats. Uh, what do you have to tell me, Brennan? What do I have to tell you, Jason? Tell me, Brennan. Well, would you like to know how Kubrick uh, decided on Malcolm McDowell? How did he decide on the on Mr. McDowell? Why? He, he had seen the film If, which uh, is on this list, so we will get to it at some point. I've never seen it. Me neither. But he had seen it like apparently like four or five times like in a short, quick succession, so he loved it. And... Um, McDowell actually also contributed to the costume because what he did is he showed him his kind of white cricket uniform and Kubrick was like, I like that, but put the jock strap on top. Oh, the cod piece. The cod yes. piece, yeah, on top of the uniform, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, so the book itself, Clockwork Orange, first came into possession of writer Terry Southern, who wrote uh, Dr. Strangelove. Oh, and also wrote on Saturday Night Live for one season and had some of the most bizarre sketches of all time. Which season? Uh, seven. Not the notorious one, but the year after the that. The year after it. First Dick Ebersole <laughs> year. Um, so at first, though, Kubrick didn't really want to do the movie because mm. he was developing a project on Napoleon. Oh, one of the great lost films that was never made. Yep, never ended up getting off the ground. But he wanted to make that Napoleon movie. So when that failed, he came back to this project and he wrote his script. Because Kubrick also wrote the script. Mm. Uh, he based it on the American version, which, like Jason said, uh, omitted, the, or omitted the final chapter. Uh, Kubrick and the author kind of had a falling out. So they were pretty... Like, they were pretty Stanley Kubrick had a problem with somebody? I know. <laughs> so Stanley Kubrick and the author had a, were actually pretty good friends like they got along well until yeah. they had a bit of a falling out when uh a lot of the um the religious critics started attacking the movie for its violence and all that and, and it that it glorified violence so kubrick was defending it and anthony burgess who was actually himself a catholic mm. uh thought that his book had a lot of like moral christianity points like it wasn't like a, a book denouncing religion but when mm. kubrick was defending it he kind of made it sound like that mm. so they didn't really i i guess catholicism tore them apart uh, as it has so many families yes uh this film was actually the quickest that kubrick ever shot a movie how long did it take 
Seven years, no. <laughs> uh, he completed it between September of 1970, and he finished it in April of 1971. So what would be a standard production period for any other movie, or maybe even longer than normal? Cooper, that's a quick one for him. Now, here's the thing. I do want to play a clip here, because this is a little bit of a Malcolm McDowell interview from the day, contemporary. Oh, nice. 1973. Well, like 1973, I think. Okay, so a few but years after the movie. He talks about Stanley Kubrick's uh, directing style and some of the like, misconceptions about it. So, here we go. You see, there's this myth going around that Stanley is in complete control, which is not true, because Stanley never knows where to put the camera, and never knows, he barely knows what scene we're shooting. And he, he comes in with no preparation, but that's because, that's because he's an artist, you see. And any director who knows what he's going to do, a very poor director, because he must use the elements that happen, the spontaneity that happens on the set, and he's able to do that, and I mean, oh, some of the scenes the actors wrote themselves in Clockwork Orange, the whole of the end scene with the mouth opening up and taking the food at the end of the film, it was completely just done on the spur of the moment, uh, the singing in the rain sequence was um, something that came into my own head, and I started to sing it, I, I was kicking, you know, this, uh, the stuntman, and slapping the, the woman, and started to sing Singing in the Rain, you know, something that just happens. That's very strange, because when you see the picture, you have the idea that everything is prepared. And mm. Oh, well, he's clever, too. <laughs> he's like clever. That. I like that a little bit at the end. Well, yeah, you think that he over-prepares it. Yeah, well, he made you think that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's just a misconception about Stanley Kubrick from Malcolm McDowell, is that he's not, I mean, yes, he's the ultimate control freak. Yeah. Um, but he's not as prepared as people think. He that's, doesn't have it all mapped out in his head. That's why he has to do so many takes, because he needs to find the one he wants. But that's the other thing. <laughs> this movie didn't have that many takes. No? Uh, maybe he did for some movies, but this is only his experience, right, mm -hmm. on this movie. He might have done a lot on The Shining. I heard he did do a lot on The Shining and caused Shelley Duvall to kind of, you know, yeah. lose her mind. Yeah. Uh, I heard about the horror stories about Scatman Crothers having to do that act scene like over and over and over and over and over again. Jack Nicholson begging him to stop. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, it. I'm not saying he's a perfect guy. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's probably not a super nice dude. I bet you he and David Lean would have got along. Oh, him and David Lean and, like, Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> what Just a, what a dinner that would have been, and they would have had two dinners because Hitchcock would have insisted. Oh, that too. No, no, that's legit. He's done that before. He, I've heard stories of him being like, let's do it again, and then orders the same thing again. Uh, so we talked about the language, the, the slanguage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reasoning for that was the author, he wanted to make it, well, obviously it's a futuristic world, but he also wanted to make it so that the book wouldn't age yeah. later in later years. So he said, if I use the contemporary language of the day, yeah. it's not going to work out It's a book well. set in the 60s or 70s. Like yeah, it's, yeah, like it's, it's, if it's set in the future, it should feel that, like that, but also not hokey. Yeah. So he came up with this kind of nad, nadsat, nadsat, yeah. nadsat language, um, that apparently has like a little bit of Russian in it too. Yep, it's it's yeah. it's, it's kind of a combination of Russian and, and English slang. Yeah. Another thing too about this movie is that it's often claimed by the right and the left as their kind of doctrine, mm -hmm. because the left side they see um, the the government, the right wing government, as being you know this obviously this is Kubrick trying to tell us that the right wing government is horrible, like yeah. you know, they're doing this thing that doesn't not going to work. Well, trying to take away these people's free will and 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 make them shells of people. Yeah, no matter what 
people they may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, while the right wing says, well, we've got this crazy left wing old man who wants to force this guy to commit suicide just to make a political statement. So I, I my opinion, it's neither. Yes. Like, I think he has points on either side. Uh, so this movie is released. It is given a rating of X mm. in its original release. Well, I mean, and that's under given the content of the movie. It's understandable for 1972. So Kubrick voluntarily replaced approximately 30 seconds of a sexually explicit footage uh, to get an R to get an R rating. Uh, so it was finally re-released in 1973 with an R rating. Uh, actually, if you get it on DVD or Blu-ray now, it's actually the original version and still has an R rating. So. The Catholic office obviously didn't like it. Oh. They rated it C for condemned. Did Bill Donahue have a problem with this Phil? movie? No, Bill. Oh, I don't know. With the Catholic League? Here's a, here's <laughs> a little uh, thing about this. So in March of 1972, mm-hmm. there was a trial of a 14-year-old male accused of the manslaughter of one of his classmates. Prosecutor referred to a clockwork orange, suggesting that the film had a relevance to the case. Uh, the film was also linked to the murder of an elderly man by a 16-year-old boy who pleaded guilty after telling police that friends had told him of the film and the beating up of a, the quote-unquote and the beating up of an old boy like this one. His defense told the court that the link between this crime and sensational literature, particularly A Clockwork Orange, is established beyond reasonable doubt. The press also blamed the film for a rape in which the attackers sang Singing in the Rain as Singing in the Rape. Uh, well, that's just a thing you could do without even having seen this movie. Well, I mean, it was the details were very close yeah. to the scenes in the movie. Was, I'm was not he saying wearing a long nose mask while he did it. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not saying. <laughs> I'm not sitting here blaming the movie. I'm just saying it, it was similar. Uh, Stanley Kubrick's wife, in fact, even said that they received a lot of death threats and had protesters outside. It's so funny. It's time. one of those things, Brendan. The more things change, the more they say the same. You know, know, in the 1970s, they were right, banging on about Clockwork Orange being this bad influence, and it's like today, except instead of Clockwork Orange, it's Grand Theft Auto. So I don't know if you know this, but uh, Stanley Kubrick interviews are almost non-existent. Yeah, he's not, he's not a very talkative guy. I didn't even know he was. Spe- I didn't even know he was specifically American. Until yeah, I, no, looked it up to find I thought out. he was British for yeah, the longest time. I assumed time. he was British. So here's the thing about Stanley Kubrick. Uh, yeah, he doesn't do interviews, but I did find this little quote from him because the film was withdrawn from British release in 1973 huh. at the request of Stanley Kubrick. Oh. Uh, in, in the response, so he did respond to the allegation of, allegations of copycat violence for the movie. This is what he said. To try and fasten any responsibility on art as the cause of life seems to me to put the case the wrong way, the wrong way around. Art consists of reshaping life, but it does not create life nor cause life. Furthermore, to attribute powerful suggestive qualities to a film is at odds with the scientifically accepted view that, even after deep hypnosis in a post-hypnotic state, people could not be made to do things which are at odds with their natures. So, he's hmm. just, that, that's a big, that's him saying, this movie didn't make him do anything, they were already going to do this. But guess what? If you think this movie's bad, guess what? You don't get to see it anymore. Uh, did you also notice in that Malcolm McDowell thing he said Singing in the Rain was that was an improvised yeah, yeah I'd, I'd heard insane. that I'd heard that over years ago that's one of the most iconic scenes yeah. in that movie and yeah. that is a total improv on set yeah. and, and I guess that plays into what he said about Kubrick being somebody who, who doesn't come prepared in the sense that he wants to do it on the set like yeah if, if Kubrick had have thought oh you know, he's going to beat this guy up and he's going to do it to the French can-can, and that's how it's going to be. It probably would have been terrible. But the fact that he was able to work with Malcolm McDowell, and they found out something that worked on the set in the moment. That's so cool. Yeah. So this movie has a fairly uh, small budget. I mean, maybe not for the time, but yeah, $2.2 2 mm-hmm. That's pretty small budget. And what did it gross? 
It made, in North America alone, so I don't know worldwide or anything, but in North America it made $26.6 million. That's so a pretty good return. Made its money back. Yeah. Jason. Yes, Brendan. Let's dive into this movie. And as we dive in, I just want to give a big thank you to Archive.org for having a copy of this movie posted for some reason, and it's really good quality. So if you want to see it, search out A Clockwork Orange on Archive.org. That's Archive.org. Um, I almost thought there was going to be an overture at the beginning when the, 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 the intro is so long, the music is like stends for so long mm-hmm. that I was like, Oh, is he doing like a, like a, um, what movie did we watch? Dr. Zhivago, yeah. like yeah, an overture and an yeah, entre act. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's what I was expecting, man. We could talk about a whole other show about the symbolism of this movie, like all the phallic and. Uh, a lot of the religious symbolism. We, we, we remember the too. scene with the with the the dancing chorus line of Jesus statue. Yeah, it's like four Jesuses, and they're kind of doing a little dance line. And, and well, and what is one of the first things we see these horrible people doing? Drinking milk. Yeah, the purest. Like they're wearing all white mm-hmm. for the whole movie. They're drinking milk. Yeah, they're in a milk bar. All these uh, female statues in like statues really... and tables that are naked ladies, which you can place your drink basically on their vagina. Yeah. Um, all these uh, statues of women in like you know some some questionable poses. Oh, the the one where Dim goes to get a glass of milk and he has to like the the milk shoots out of her nipple and he's like reaching between her legs and there's like a handle there that looks like a purple dildo that he has to yeah it's it's visually stunning. Yes, it is. Uh, so and we let's get to the so I want to talk about something too. Um, first of all, the singing in the rain thing that we just mentioned earlier. I know I'm kind of all over the place. It's I'm working on lack of sleep. Yeah. But I'm trying. For you, Jason. Thank you, And Brennan. for our listeners. They thank you. Do they thank me? Even though they're stupid dummies, they thank you. <gasps> Jason, you got to stop that. All right. Again, I'm sorry, guys. I I feel like we're in a sort of a weird, abusive relationship here that uh, you don't reciprocate yet. So why don't we just don't, and uh, we'll forget this ever happened. You just going to sweep it under the rug? Absolutely. Government style. <laughs> Mega. Um, one thing I wanted to say about the Singing in the Rain thing is he's definitely into like Beethoven and like classical music so the mm. Singing in the Rain thing doesn't quite connect for me well I, I would say that uh, by this point in the in the near retro future that Singing in the Rain would be like it is now I mean you think of Singing in the Rain now it's like this old Gene Kelly was it Gene Kelly? Yeah, but he seems more into like classical yeah. music, not like movie. But that stuff songs. in but that stuff in the near seventies future is considered classic music. I would say classic, but classical. Because well, he's just, like he Beethoven and Mozart. You, I like lots. Of, I like old country. I like old rock. I love Beethoven. I like fucking Bach. Sure, but he's very much like established as someone who. Are likes... you saying he's a hipster? <laughs> Possibly. Yeah, he might be. He I don't know. I did, it just it's. I'm not saying anything against the scene. It's a great. It's a great scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very disturbing scene, but it's yeah. a great scene. But it just. It may, I thought about that after I watched it. And I was like, that's kind of weird. It would be. It would be much stranger if he was like like belting out that German ode to joy. You know, or if he was. Or if he was doing it, and he was like, drink milk, love life. Actually, that'd be perfect. <laughs> that would have worked so much better. Wow. Stanley Kubrick, get at us on Twitter. Wait. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, still yeah. alive. Yeah. Um, I mean, we could talk about all the phallic imagery. There's tons of a lot it. of penis. Well, how about when he walks in? Well, I mean, first of all, when they go to the first house, uh, the scene where you know they uh, beat up the guy and rape his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's wearing like a Pinocchio nose. Yes, I mean uh, that. Uh, on one hand, 
he lies to get in the house. So yeah. I think that's kind of that. That's yeah. But it's also phallic. It's very phallic. Very phallic. Like because that's that's the scene where he he rapes the guys. If wife. you look close, sometimes if uh, for a brief second you could see a little bit of Malcolm McDowell's dick. If that's uh, what you're into. <laughs> During uh, interrogations, during yes, yeah, so yeah. uh, I love that. I I love that prison scene where he's it's it's the Blues Brothers, you know, giving your shit to the guy to, oh. to store away. Well, yeah, all right. Well, Do you let's hear, hear a little, a little bit? bit of that. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, I mean, this is so we're skipping ahead. Yeah. I mean, we've gone through the movie, but this is when he first gets arrested. Uh, he sees this guy, uh, Officer Barnes. Yes, who I think that guy's great. Yeah, he's the unsung gem of this movie. Yeah. Uh, he definitely is like the representative of the right. like of, the, of, And of the British establishment and of the sorts of folks that would be in either the police department or corrections or... Uh, is it just me or when I watched this movie I thought, man, John Cleese could have played that role. He probably could have but it, but th- this guy did it in a way that wasn't even the least bit funny. But it, I mean, it, it, it was, was funny but it wasn't because ah! he was funny. It was because it was... The, the character is such... It's almost such a stock British character that that guy could have been in any movie as like a British sergeant or... Anybody in uniform. I honestly got quite a few laughs from this yeah. guy. Uh, just, just so intense. Delivery. Okay, so here is uh, Alex giving up his like clothing and everything, and uh, Barnes is asking him a series of questions. Yes. One of them makes me die laughing. Were you in police custody this morning? No, sir. One jacket, blue pinstripe. Prison custody? Yes, sir. On remand, sir. One necktie, blue. Religion? C of E, sir. Do you mean the Church of England? Yes, sir. The Church of England, sir. Brown hair, isn't it? Fair hair, sir. Blue eyes? Blue, sir. Do you wear eyeglasses or contact lenses? No, sir. One shirt, blue, collar attached. Have you been receiving medical treatment for any serious illness? No, sir. One pair of boots, black leather zippered, worn. Have you ever had any mental illness? No, sir. Do you wear any false teeth or any false limbs? No, sir. One pair of trousers, blue pinstripe. Have you ever had any attacks of fainting or dizziness? No, sir. One pair of socks, black. Are you an epileptic? No, sir. One pair of underpants, white, with blue waistband. Are you now, or have you ever been, a homosexual? No, sir. Right. Have you now, or have you ever been, a homosexual? I have a Doesn't it sound like the commie witch hunts? Yeah, yeah it does. <laughs> have you now, have you ever been a communist? Uh, I, yeah, I, I wonder now. Listening to that again and listening to his type of voice, he he literally sounds like a Monty Python, like a specific Monty Python character. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's why I thought, like, man, John Cleese could have played that part. Yeah, John, I think he probably could have. Yeah, but I mean, I think if I think, I think if Kubrick had put John Cleese in it, we would be watching in a completely different light. It may very well. May yeah. very well. Uh, there's some disturbing imagery too. With there's like uh, Greek paintings that are, have graffiti on them. I noticed some of the, some of it said, "If it moves, kiss it." <laughs> uh, it's when he's talking to his droogs in the apartment building. Oh, okay. Which, by the way, wow, that's another thing. That apartment is a shambles. Yeah. Like, the building itself? Yeah, and then I think that's that's the indicative of the type of dystopian near future that they're in. That these, these are like public housing kind of things. And yeah, they're just not taken care of. There's graffiti everywhere. There's garbage everywhere. Yeah. And it's very the, much a... a, a it's very much a society in decline. The inside of the apartment is not too bad. Yeah, but well, the building itself... Also, did you know that uh, the reason Kubrick... Because he's a, he's a bastard. Mm. The reason Kubrick gave him a snake in the movie yeah. is because he knew Malcolm McDowell was terrified of snakes. <laughs> Isn't that awful? Yeah. Well, I mean, nobody ever said he was a nice man. Uh, so, what's the other thing I wanted to say? Oh, did you catch the 2001 A Space Odyssey? Uh, was it in the music store? There's the the album is right there, front and center. Nice. Yeah. I was uh, looking at all the fake names of bands on the wall, and I thought, I wonder how many of those 
fake names have now been taken by real bands that have used them. <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about more imagery? The 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 what the cat cat lady we talked mm-hmm. about. Lots of stuff in hers. Mm-hmm. Um, she even has a picture of uh, one of the girl, a girl with like the cuts. You know how he cut that yeah, girl's yeah. shirt earlier to expose like her nipples. Yeah. The woman has a painting of that. Oh, weird. Like not obviously not that person, no. but like the same. But that thing. same idea. Yeah. It's just like wow, that's an odd choice. And well, she also has paintings of vaginas on her walls. Well, I mean, I have a few here. Yeah. Well, they're then they're very nice. I especially love that that fuzzy one there. Thank you. That's actually that's actually me. Oh. So. Oh God. Oh no. Yeah. No. Uh, no. <sighs> Pull it together, Jason. <laughs> um. So, do you think? Okay, my okay. Here's my here's All a right. question for you. You ready hit for this? Me. Hit me with your best shot. Now don't you hit me with your best shot? Fire away. Alex's motivation for volunteering for the Ludovico technique. By the way, in the book, he doesn't volunteer for the technique. He actually uh, gets tr- this guy, a tr- uh, prison inmate, tries to rape him and he kills him. And then basically they force him to do the hmm. technique. But this one he volunteers, which is a different choice. Again, Kubrick is making very conscious decisions yeah. to change things. But when he requests well, to do it, do a- you think he actually wants to not commit violence, or do you think he's just doing? He's just saying like. I want to do this so I don't end up back here. I think that's bit what it boils down to because he basically yeah. sees that as a get out of jail freak. Yeah, because I, I don't think he understands. He clearly doesn't understand the extent of what this treatment is going to do and what it's going to do to him. Right. He sees he sees a fast path out of prison and he's going to use his charm and and guile to to get that and make that happen. And actually, I'm kind of glad that in the movie they do it this way where he makes the choice to do it. Yeah. Because the movie a, a huge theme of the movie is the idea of choice and of free will and you know. Uh, as the priest says, uh, after Alex is put through this, he says, a man is not a man if he can't choose. And Alex can't choose. Right. He chose to take the treatment, but once the treatment was done, he can't choose to be a good person. He's only forced into it by his circumstances and by his conditioning. Exactly. Yeah. I also got a, like, a little bit of a World War II vibe from the uh, the scene in which they're all in a circle, all the prisoners. Mm. Or, yeah, all the prisoners and uh, Barnes is coming out with the with the minister and all that stuff. It feels very like because they're like, oh, Stalin, oh, and I feel like it's almost like a Nazi yelling yeah, treat, at them to get treat, treating the prisoners like POWs, and, like, yeah, the military. It's it's <laughs> very yeah, it's very like what. But again, this is in a dystopian England, an England that is uh, uh, crumbling essentially uh, uh, under the weight of the crime uh, in society. So that probably makes sense that that would exist or that people would act like that. We talked about the uh, the eye drops being real, mm. like putting it, put it in his eyes. Did you know what happened? He actually suffered a scratched cornea mm-hmm. because of this, um, yeah. and he was temporarily blinded. So basically, they were like, "Okay, well, we gotta have a real person on set, like a real physician, because this is not good." Uh, so he basically kept doing it so that his eyes wouldn't dry out. Yeah. Like literally, guys, if you, I mean, I'm sure a lot of you listening to this have seen or know of a Clockwork Orange. It's the scene where his eyes are wide open, pried open with metal, and he's watching footage. I think most people have seen that picture of his Again, eyes. Again, like I say, if you've watched an Oscar broadcast in the last 30 years, you've probably seen that. Or The Simpsons. Or The Simpsons, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Some reference there. Uh, yeah. Did you, okay, here's another thing. Cartoonish stuff in this movie. There are some like scenes that are almost cartoon. Like, how about the brawl between the gangs? Yeah. That is very, like... 
It's a very, it's a very over the top fight. It's like they're fucking tossing each other up in the air and slamming chairs over each other, and and I don't even mean it in like a negative way. Oh, it's so over the top. No, it's clearly intentional. It's intentional. It's great, but it is. It just feels like it's way beyond the energy of the movie at that point. But it's great. And then, and then to Officer Barnes, I feel I find is sometimes very cartoonish the way it's just like (laughs) again. I die laughing at the. Oh, you are a homosexual. No, he's he is a yeah he is a cartoonish stereotype of a British person in uniform. And the humiliation scene is the biggest one because when the guy is beating him up, he literally does that cartoon thing where he's like, "How about I do this yeah. and this and this and that?" And it's it's like right off a of Bugs Bunny cartoon. And for some reason, it's not it's not him at all. But for some reason, that guy in that scene made me think of Albert Brooks. <laughs> I don't know why. Albert Brooks, small part in yeah, Clockwork small Orange. part in Clockwork Orange. <laughs> and then he did Taxi Driver. <laughs> uh, he was in taxi- Are you making a double joke? Is Albert Brooks in Taxi Driver? He is driver? in Taxi Driver. Oh, I haven't seen Taxi he's Driver the guy in a long time. That, he's the guy that works with um, Sybil Shepard in the, in the election office. Are we thinking of the same movie? Taxi Driver? With Robert De Niro yeah. and, and uh, Jodie yeah. Foster Sybil Shepard and, and Harvey Keitel. You're not remembering Sybil Shepherd, the girl no. he goes on the date with? He goes to the porno theater? That's just how long it's been since I've seen that movie, I suppose. But yeah, well, it's I'll, the, I'll trust you. It's on the BFI. Oh, is it? No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not a British film. No, why would it be? I mean... Martin Scorsese is a man who is known not to like the British. I mean, <laughs> Killing Fields... Yeah, that's why he did the fucking DVD introduction for The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. That's right. Yeah. It's like, I hate these fuckers and I hate this movie. <laughs> Let's put it on the Blu-ray. <laughs> Let's flash forward to near the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. He's uh, in the bathtub in this guy's house. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Alexander. Yeah. Do you think it's like a plot convenience that he's singing singing in the rain? Like, well, does he actually... remembers what he was... He remembers being there. Yeah. It's a weird moment. Like, yeah. it's a... What do you think? I don't know. Uh, I think it's a... I, I, watching it, I think it's like a mental slip-up on Alex's part. I think okay. that that's just something that in his life he just kind of off... He sings without even thinking about, that that's the song his mind always goes to if he's just idly like kind of humming and singing. Do, um, do you think I know that... in the book, because this was an improv... The, the singing the right thing was not in the book. Right, right, right. And in the book, they do figure out at some point that he is... The, you know, he is that guy without the benefit of the song. And But I like the moment in the movie because it is that thing of the guy, of Mr. Alexander, hearing the song and like... Just having a, just a, like I said, like almost like a, 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 it's like an acid flashback where he just starts having almost like a seizure as he remembers and, and is going through this trauma again. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I think yeah, that's what I think it is. Like Alex, Alex is very smart. He's very charismatic, but sometimes he's careless, and that was him being careless. I thought it was maybe triggered by the uh, just this, the place where he was. Maybe like it, a memory yeah, could very well be a thing. It's just he started singing because the place reminded him of it. Yeah, maybe. it just seemed weird to me that he wouldn't have been like. Oh, that's totally the song I sang when I raped this guy's wife. Like, it, it was just... he subconsciously trying to get caught? Was he maybe was maybe like the good part in the back of his head that he can't oh. access, trying to like manifest in some way that he would get caught by this person for the terrible thing he had done? I don't know. Well, let me tell you maybe something. Maybe that's reading too deep. Let me tell you something about Singing in the Rain in this movie. Okay, Stanley Kubrick was pretty good friends with Gene Kelly. Mm-hmm. I know that's a weird... That's a weird... That's a weird friendship. That would be that would be the My Dinner with Andre I would like to see. A, my Dinner with Stanley and Gene Kelly. Think about <laughs> think about the movies Stanley Kubrick made before Clockwork Orange. I mean, like 2001. Yeah. But nothing, like, controversial, no. really. Lolita, I think, was after this. Yeah. What about... Uh, uh, Killer's Kiss was a great movie. Not very controversial. Wait. Lolita... No, Lolita might have been before this. But anyway... I'm not Googling that. Gene, you're not just going to Google the word Lolita? Yeah, no, not at all. You don't want to get arrested? Not today. Uh, 
so Gene Kelly was friends with them regardless. They just they hung out. They're yeah. good buddies. They like to talk about dancing. He said, hey, Gene, do you mind if I use your uh, your song? Because he plays Singing in the Rain over the end credits. Yeah. And Gene Kelly's like, oh, yeah, sure. No problem. Go for it. Go for it. I don't care. So Gene Kelly goes to see the movie, is horrified <laughs> I when he sees what the context of this song is. Uh, doesn't doesn't he finds out that Malcolm McDowell improvised that, and that's why they put it in the movie? So he's still friends with Kubrick, but he's at a party, and Kubrick introduces him to Malcolm McDowell. And Gene Kelly tells him to fuck off and <laughs> walks away for the rest of the night. Uh, yep, didn't like Malcolm McDowell for that. Wow, that's a, that's a cool that's a cool uh, bit of uh, trivia. Before we get to the kind of the critique uh oscars etc do you have anything you'd like to add to this little deep dive into uh i just want to mention that i i want to give malcolm mcdowell all the credit in the world for looking so fucking smug throughout this movie the entire time like the smile that he has plastered on his face through most of the movie just is so it's so derisive and condescending uh, uh but at the same time endearing I don't know what it is about him, but I just... Because it's part of that charisma that he exudes. That yeah. You, you can't help but liking Alex a little bit. You're like, oh, yeah, wait, no, I fucking hate you. What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, he's, he's, he's kind of no, funny. No, and, oh, no, he's terrible. No, he's, he's terrible. A terrible no, he's person. an awful person. Yeah, uh, I know what you mean. So again, Malcolm McDowell, you're a man. And I think that's like you're the, the man. unique casting choice of Malcolm McDowell in that you could take someone who's a character who's super unlikable mm-hmm. and for like a fleeting second you forget it every yeah. now and then. Yeah, so that was that was the biggest thing that I just wanted to point out uh, yeah. from my thing. So uh, what do we go? What do we got here? Well, we get. We, uh, I mean, Stanley Kubrick goes to the Oscars, does not win a single Oscar. I see. And uh, why would that be, Brandon? Well, uh, first of all, I want to say that it's also nominated for seven uh, BAFTAs, British Film Academy or British Academy Film Awards, and wins none of those either. Oh wow! At the Oscars, it. Just saying right now, every nomination I list, it loses to The French Connection. So, ah, yes. The heart... Is that... Um, so... Uh, Gene... Gene Hackman. Wilder. Gene yeah. Wilder, yeah. Yeah, Gene Hackman. <laughs> uh, so, Best Editing loses... Uh, best Editing nominated for, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Picture. Hmm. French Connection for all four of those, and I think French Connection won like other things. Too. French Gene Connection Hackman, clearly swept that year. Well, yeah, because Gene Hackman won that year for Best Actor, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I mean, not, it doesn't win a single Oscar. Pauline Kael, I'm sure you've heard of that critic, Pauline Kael. Okay, yeah. Uh, hates this movie. Yeah. <laughs> she, uh, she said it was, you know, disgusting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's, She's, I, that, that's an interesting thing. Like what, what would a, a, and I'm sure there wasn't very many lady critics in the seventies in comparison to the amount of male critics. <laughs> lady yeah. critics. Well, female critics. No, it just sounds like a like a like a sitcom. Girl critics, you know, broads, broads <laughs> reviewing movies. Uh, what what a perspective of, it's, of it a, sounds like a, of a female a, critic in nineteen seventy three yeah. or whatever would be on that, and probably didn't get too many other than somebody like her. It sounds like a seventies era commercial for like blow dryers, just like that, or like uh, like shavers. It's like, and now new lady critic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, she she famously doesn't. Famously throughout the years, hated a lot of kind of iconic movies. Like she mm-hmm. hated like she hated like two thousand one, like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark is a great movie. I know. Just saying. She there was a lot of movies she didn't care for. 
And, and Marion Ravenwood is a strong character who drinks somebody under the table, so that's pretty cool. She, ew, what? She, oh, oh, yeah. gotcha. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I'm just fucking with you. <laughs> uh, so what do we think? So Clockwork Orange is number 81 on this list. On the AFI, it ranks at number 70. Um, I feel like this is really low for something that's so, like, kind of subversive. Iconic. And impactful, iconic, like, referenced so much. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, this is a movie whose imagery has, has extended far beyond itself. Like, I mean, it my is only, in everything. Yeah, my only thought is, like, maybe it's just the controversy is, like, to, maybe it's just because it's so much it's so much a movie where i don't think you could just anyone could just watch this movie i think if you if you are hesitant about the subject matter you'd have a hard time i've i've talked about movies in the past like a like a schindler's list and the killing fields are two examples of movies that i've say that you know you may not be entertained by this film but you should see it because it's important uh this is a movie that is not that this is a movie that I think you have to be a certain type of person to really enjoy, and unfortunately, I think I'm one of those people because I fucking love this movie. Yeah. But I can understand why somebody would watch this movie and find it very difficult to get through because it, it, it is it is very dark and very intense. It is very dark, but the movie is done in a way that's not. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's 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 stylized in a way that where if it wasn't about this subject matter, it would be you know a fun romp. Yeah, I mean but, it's it's like this isn't shot like a Paul Greengrass movie or something. It's not super gritty with like you know like crazy shaky angles and stuff. Yeah. Like this is a Stanley Kubrick movie. Clockwork Orange is lots not of it. wide angle lenses, lots of really crazy sets, lots of interesting patterns and compositions in the screen. Like it's a beautiful looking movie. Clockwork Orange is not in the DC universe. Is what no, you're trying to say? Damn it! Yeah, sorry. I want Alex a Clockwork Del- Orange Man. <laughs> so do you know what the title refers to? Can we talk about that for a sec? Uh, a penis? No. Okay. The title refers to the idea of so uh, that that Alex, when he gets his treatment, he's like you know he's a man on the outside, but on the inside he's essentially a machine of sorts because he doesn't have a choice. He's just an automaton going through life. He's like a Clockwork Orange. It's an organic peel on the outside, but you know a machine inside. So oh. yeah, that's the metaphor. Okay. Did not know that until today. I didn't know that until just now. There you go. So we win. We both win in this one. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to say it definitely should be a little bit higher. Quite a bit higher, honestly, on mm-hmm. the list. Absolutely. Uh, or lower, I guess, whatever you want to call it. Well, now, Jason, guess now. what it's time for. Is it time to watch a clock record again? Because I would. Uh, now, Jason is going to roll the dice, as you can hear. And whatever number he lands on will correspond to the number on the BFI Top 100 British Films of All Time list that we will be covering next week. Absolutely. So, Jason. Yeah, I will do my thing. Do your thing, and... I sure hope we get something short and funny. It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. Full Monty, we hardly knew you. We hardly knew you, Full Monty. All right, are you ready, Brandon? Are you ready for this shit? I'm are you excited. ready? Are you ready for this shit? Man, man, I have a small table. All right. What do we got? That would be seven. Oh, boy. Okay, seven is the movie Kess, K-E-S. Now, by... is that about the character of Kess from Star Trek Voyager? I don't believe so. Okay, so I don't know anything about it then. Uh, I thought I was going to have an advantage here, but I don't. And I was also going to tell you who stars in it, but I don't know any of these people. So it's Kess, 1969, directed by Ken Loach. Hmm. And it is... Um, 
That's 112 minutes, so not too bad. Okay, well, it's under two hours. <laughs> it's under two hours. Well, I'll take what we can get. I hope it's funny. Uh, I mean, it's number seven. That's pretty high. That's a pretty high. That's higher than uh, Bridge on the River Quad. That's the highest, the highest ranking. Okay, that is so the far. highest one we've done so far. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, that'll be something. We will. Get ready, folks. But for now, Jason. Oh, you know what, though? What? Hold on. What? What? We're on Twitter. Yes. At BFI underscore pod. You can follow us there. I can also follow Jason at... Uh, at Jason D. McLeod. That's spelled M-A-C in the proper Scottish way. L-E-O-D. Yep. And uh, you can find us on Podbean and... Uh, uh, Podbean, obviously, for screenandcountry.podbean.com iTunes slash Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And our ICQ UIN is 104-811-274. That's 104-811-274. Look us up. Also, hit me up on AIM. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Canada. That's right. Uh, And that's going to do it. So I guess I just have to say, uh, God save the queen. God save the screen. For Screen and Country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. Punch it, Chewy! I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling, I'm happy again. I'm laughing at clouds so dark up above. The sun's in my heart and I'm ready for love. Let the stormy clouds chase everyone from the place. Come on with the rain, I have a smile on my face. I walk down the lane with a happy refrain. Hi, I'm Ellen, and I'm scared we exist in the Matrix. I'm Jaslyn, and I'm bad at ad living. <laughs> and you're listening to High, High Expectations, Expectations, the promo. For our international listeners, you can appreciate our cute New Zealand accents. For our local listeners, you might bump into us in the street three times in the same hour. Our podcast is about pop culture, sexuality, relationships, interesting hobbies, banter, and ragging on each other. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict, or anywhere you might like to find podcasts. Yay! Please subscribe. Goodbye! Hey, do you like movies? Hey, do you like podcasts? If you do, then come on down and listen to the Home Video Hustle podcast, homie. Hustle, hustle. Every Friday, we talk about whatever movie PJ picks out the bag. What does that mean? Well, every Wednesday on our YouTube page, I pick a bunch of movies at random. Sometimes there's a theme to it, sometimes not. PJ picks the movie out, and guess what? We watch it on Friday. We talk about it for about maybe an hour, hour and a half, whatever we feel like doing. Might give you something good to watch, baby. Come on down every Friday. So come get your hustle on with Home Video Hustle. You can find the show on any podcatcher app, or you can come down to homevideohustle.poppin.com. All of them in one place for you, so you can go ahead and binge it like it's Netflix. We ain't the defenders, uh. but I like to think we a little bit better than that. <laughs> Come out at your boys, man. Come chill with us. Peace. Peace.